The Athletic. It's 2023 MotoGP launch season, which means new bikes, which look a lot like the bikes we saw prototypes of in testing last year, and new liveries, which might look slightly new and different to last year if you squint really hard. But despite all the journalistic cynicism of my last sentence, we're a little bit closer to racing, and that is genuinely pretty exciting. So joining me, Matt Beer, on the Race MotoGP podcast as we talk about 2023 for the first time, uh, Simon Patterson, who is waiting at an airport gate looking a little bit anxious for logistical reasons, and Valentin Harunchi, who is in the more civilised location of his house with a pink kettle in the background. Welcome to MotoGP 2023. How are you enjoying launch season so far? I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this sound as exciting as, as a team launch. I don't even know if it really counts as launch season whenever it's spread out over like 10 weeks and three tests. <laughs> it, it all feels a bit, um, yeah, drawn out. I saw that uh, Jack, our American editor, had written a really good IndyCar piece the other day about how basically they mess up their launches every year. And I thought, yeah, th- there's elements of that in MotoGP as well. This could be a bit more theatrical than it has been, but it is what it is. This mid-season, mid-launch season pause of several weeks to actually go and do some testing is quite is quite welcome, actually. Yeah, and the Ducati launch was very theatrical, and I'm not sure we really need much of that. It was overly theatrical, and also some people didn't go and are making a face right now about it. <laughs> some people weren't invited, but we'll take that one on the chin. I'm not complaining about it. We we write what we write, and if that doesn't you know always go down well with people, I'm not too upset by it. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's move let's move straight on. Uh, the the in some ways least significant but also coolest thing that's come out of the launch season so far is that the number one is back on a bike on a MotoGP grid, and I, I I feel a little bit more excited than I maybe feel I should about this. But to me, this this is properly significant. This is showing reverence for the sport that you're part of. Uh, what what do you two make of uh, Pecco Bagnaia's decision to get rid of sixty three for a year? Yeah, I wanted him to take number one. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people in our profession who think it's not really even worth caring about, and they're probably correct <laughs> to to a certain extent. Like, if, if 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 Fabio wanted to stick with twenty, that's fine. If Juan wanted to stick with thirty six, that's fine. If ninety three and forty six are now trademarks in their own, that's fine. No issue there. But there is something really cool about seeing the the number one about the the message of that sense. I, I am champion and I I appreciate that it's not every year that I am champion and I may never get this chance again. And I appreciate that, you know, I appreciate the message that it sends also in the way that, yes, I won the title and now y'all have to take this number away from me. I mean, reading a bit too much into it, but I think it's kind of cool. I think it's part of the, the whole show of it. I don't think that's reading too much into it. I think that's spot on. Go on, Simon. I was just going to say, um, if ever, ever there was going to be a rider in the modern era that was going to run the number one after winning the championship, it was probably Paco Bagnaia because he doesn't have the same attachment to a number that the likes of Quadraro or Marquez or Rossi has, simply yeah. because he's had to change it twice on his way to MotoGP. You know, he started as 21 and, and won his first Grand Prix at 20, on 21. He went to Moto2 and had to change it to 42, won his world title there with 42, and then he came to MotoGP and Alex Rins said, nah, that's my number, and he ended up on 63. So th- there's not the same attachment to it, you know? And I think he started with four. And his first four races, the first few races in Moto3 were with four. But you know what? That attachment, it, it gets generated pretty quickly because Pecco did place a small 63 decal on his number one decal. You know, riders are a fairly superstitious bunch. So once a number brings them any sort of luck, they're gonna they're gonna stick with it for as long as they can, which is a, a fairly standard thing. Whenever you look down the years, I think everyone who's run a one, number one has run something similar. Um, I actually think there's photographs somewhere that I've seen of of Paco as a very young child running 34, because like every other Italian of his generation, he adores Kevin Schwantz. <laughs> oh, that's cute. So, is this going to be uh, Pecco's only year ever with the number one before Ennio Bastianini deposes him as uh, Ducati's lead rider? Uh, this is the big intrigue from the Ducati launch. Beyond what the bike looked like, I think we knew we weren't going to see much on the bike we hadn't seen already. The the big thing I was looking for was when those two were sat together in that press conference, what was the vibe between them? How how were they getting on? I think, Val, you, you waved first, so go for it. I, I don't think I should say I use the wave function. I didn't wave with my hand like a like a crazy person during the you podcast. You should. You should. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe that's when we do visual content, I'll do silly gestures. Um, I don't think it's his only year with the number one, but I also, I'm not confident to say one way or another, not because Banyaya is like bad or anything. Banyaya is obviously great, but MotoGP has got a really good, a lot of really good championship caliber riders. Um, I think Bastianini's chances of deposing him this year have taken a big hit because of the sprint race format. I mean, it's just, it's a format. I haven't crunched the numbers fully yet, so maybe I'm completely wrong, but it's a format that's designed to mess with him, basically. It takes away, like, a f there's an extra 50% of points that are specifically against his main strength, which is the second half of the race. He's not a particularly great, great qualifying. He's not a particularly great starter. And for the sprint races, those two things will be the most important. The dynamic between them was good. It did, like, it, I don't think they have any sort of ill feeling after 2022 because it worked out well for both, as you'll remember. So Banyaya won the title, didn't buckle under the pressure from Enea in any of those races. And Enea got his third place and presumably... Uh, a fairly tasty bonus and is now in the in the factory team and they you know they seem to be joking along with one another there's a moment where Pecco I think translated a question in English to Italian for an AA in a very sort of jovial laughing matter I think I don't think they dislike each other I don't know how much they like each other but that's you know that's not my business but I don't think there's like a, a heated rivalry there but there's gonna be awkward times I think that's entirely possible I think Enea is the kind of guy who maybe probably won't share Pecco's cooperation mantra that Pecco repeatedly stressed during his time with, with Jack Miller, that sort of togetherness in preparation. I think Enea is just a bit of a lone wolf from the way he conducts himself in media, certainly. And I think we're going to see that at some point this season. So regarding retaining the number one, um, I'm less certain that he's going to be able to do that than I, I would be in normal circumstances. And that's nothing against Peko. I just think that we're going into a really, really odd MotoGP championship year. Um, you know, we've got these extra 50% of points from the sprint races. We've got the, all the extra flyaway races at the end of the year that's going to really crank up the intensity of it. We've got a Mark Marquez who's a complete unknown. We've got Fabio Quadraro's Yamaha that we don't know if it's going to be competitive or not. And then, you know, looking at, it's obviously, it's a little bit hard to tell what the, the relationship between them is like too closely from a distance. Um, I think even if we'd been in the room with them, it would, you know, it would all be smiles and faces for the cameras. So it's, it's not too easy to read into it. But I think you're exactly right, Val. If they'd finished second and third in the championship last year, or if they'd finished first and fourth in the championship last year, the mood would be a lot different than, than where they did finish. Um, you know, we know that, that towards the end of the year, Bastianini was chasing third really, really hard, and he got there. We know that Pekka was chasing a championship, and he obviously won it. Um, and, and yeah, if those two things hadn't happened, the mood in the box would be a bit tenser. Um, but, you know, they, they, it's worth remembering, we did hype up a lot, the, the rivalry between them last year. But they never collided. They never knocked each other off. They never came to fisticuffs and pit lane afterwards. There was none of that. That the sort of drama that leaves lasting resentment. I think a lot of it was done and dusted on a Sunday night. Which yeah. First of all, credit to Banyaya for that. He really handled himself really well against the Bastianini pressure and what he publicly said and how how little he genuinely seemed bothered by it. Uh, just, you know, it's really good focus, really impressive. Uh, he, he had a job to do and he, he got it done and he didn't get disturbed by potential interference from within the camp. And secondly, I'd like to welcome our fourth host, the airport announcer, <laughs> who is starting into the job permanently next week. <laughs> I think, though, with, with this Ducati dynamic, I don't think it's that we're guilty of hyping up something that isn't there because partly we'll find out in the season if it's real or not because right now there's nothing for them to be crossed with each other for this is going to erupt on track but i think the main thing in this situation is ducati was absolutely spoiled with how well it turned out with banyaya and jack miller because those two kind of rose up through the ranks together they could they were effectively both fighting to be ducati's future factory number one and then when they got there banyaya took charge yeah. and miller very gallantly very impressively very graciously went okay I, I am your support act a lot of the time. I'll be I'll be your wingman. I know my place. I'll win some races too. But I, I can't think of many other riders who, having followed that trajectory alongside someone, would have kind of acquiesced 
I'm not going to say easily, because I don't think it can't be an easy choice for him, but he did it with incredible maturity. I cannot see that happening with either of these two now, if Bastianini comes out on top or, or Banyaya. It's, it's what comes when, when you've had a career of job security uncertainty and you know that you don't want to, you don't want to sh- shake, shake the boat unnecessary. Shake the boat. They don't say that. That's not a, that's not a Rock phrase. The boat. Rock the boat. That's terrible. My apologies. Uh, but yeah. I think I think that was a big part of it, and ultimately Jack still had to leave. So how well it's worked out, I don't know. But he's he certainly made himself more attractive to employers, both uh, employers both new and old, in gracefully accepting the fact that this younger guy who came in when I was supposed to lead the team and just suddenly ended up in this particular circumstance at this particular time, better. A lot of respect because I think 80% of the riders throw a massive temper tantrum there. Like, the, the other thing is, and this, this is going to sound really mean towards Jack and it's not intended to be at all, but I think he probably accepted that he wasn't as good as Peko. And I don't think Bastianini believes he's not as good as Peko. Um, I think Jack Jack knows his place in the grid and it's not a future MotoGP world champion. I still think that's quite a remarkable yeah. mindset Yeah. For, don't don't put that to him in a to... session because I yeah. have a feeling that you're not gonna you're not gonna get a printable answer. <laughs> we should uh, talk about the bike a little bit as well. Talk about the, the new Ducati. So this time last year, things were massively optimistic for Ducati. It looked like it would dominate. In the end, it did dominate. But along the way, it had to publicly apologise to Peko for such an awful start to the season and make a complete mess of testing and the opening races. Um, it does sound from the launch as if. Ducati's learnt from that and plans to do things a little bit differently this year. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely sounds like the bike is is much more of an evolution than a revolution, which is what we thought this year's bike was, to be fair. But um, listening to the riders, it, it seems like, yeah, no, there was quite a bit of changes done there because Gigi Delinia is a mad genius and he had two years where he wasn't able to update his bike because of the the restrictions under COVID. So I think he went a little bit crazy with lots of mad ideas and weird suggestions. And well, we we know that they started the year in the back foot um, because of that late swap back to the earlier spec of engine for Bagnaya and Miller because they didn't like the new one and there wasn't enough of the old one for everyone. So we ended up with two different specs of GP22. all of that has has been well i don't know how much all of that has been learned because they they were bound to have known what they were doing going into last year but it's almost that they've decided to listen to bagnaya they've they've taken his criticism of them and and i went back and looked and i'd actually forgotten just how strong some of the criticism that he gave them was but after the first race in qatar last year he was pretty brutal with them um and i also forgot that i'd went and found davide tardazzi after the race and he you know, expecting him to sort of be a bit bullish as he normally is, and he, he just gushed an apology out about the, the preseason that they'd uh, that they'd led Bagnaya into. So yeah, maybe it's a case of not having as much new stuff to try, and maybe it's a case of of trying to keep their number one happy. But either way, we we're going into the year with a bike that's not that changed. I mean, you know, listening to some of the some of the Ducati higher ups around like end of testing last year, end of postseason testing last year and the, the launch materials this year. I mean, if if Gigi Dalinia sees something big that he can introduce, he's, I don't think he's going to be overruled by rider concerns. And he, like from his tone, you don't get the feeling that he feels that they flubbed the start of last season, which, you know, he's, he's maybe right to feel that way because they won the championship. So... Maybe some of us might might feel that they should have won it more easily, given the state of the M1 through the season. But anyway, by the sounds, it's it's more indeed it's more evolution than revolution, and that's you know that's the the smart money play, I guess. Just looking at the strength of the Ducati all season last year, well, most of the season, and at the end of 2021, though, that bike should not have had to come back from a record deficit in the points no. to win the championship. I think if if whoever at Ducati isn't aware that there was a little bit of a close call last year. And if Yamaha had been more competitive, if Yamaha had more than one functioning rider, yeah. there's no way they could have pulled off that salvage job. No, no absolutely. And, you know, it, it, 
it, it has to have been a bit of a warning as well that most of the points that they are a lot of the points that they lost earlier on in the year were lost to the Ducatis too. Yes. You know, th there's a lot of races where Bagnaia was coming home fifth because things weren't right and there was maybe one or two Ducatis in front of him. Uh, Yamaha was actually the first of the teams to launch uh, this, this year. I, I still, given the way last season went, I still have to stop myself saying Yamaha is defending champion with Quattararo because I was so convinced it was going to happen for most of most of last season. But Yamaha, which is fighting back from a narrow title defeat, was the first to launch. And for its uh, kind of Southeast Asian heartland, a fantastically timed launch to take advantage of its uh, of its massive sales in that area. For me and you at this end, Simon, that was a bit of a bleary night, wasn't it? It's uh, three a.m. waiting for that to start. I don't think it was particularly well received by their riders either. Basically, <laughs> flew to Jakarta for an hour, um, <laughs> which yeah. Although I noticed that Fabio Quartararo has obviously managed to to swing an LA trip for a bit of Supercross action under the end of it, which is oh, nice. typical Fabio. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a strange event in that there was no media there. They didn't speak to anyone. They didn't do any Zoom debriefs or any video calls with us. Um, it was literally just a case of here's a slightly different looking M1 see you in Sepang. Um, but it is actually a, a slightly different looking M1, which is not something I expected. I thought we'd see another exactly the same livery. And instead, it looks a little bit like title sponsor Monster, but a little bit more input. Um, it's gone a bit digital camouflage, a bit younger, a bit monster demographic. Um, whether that's, you know, they, they made a lot of talk in the launch about why, about that being, you know, a, a more aggressive team, uh, a more more you know, different mentality within the squad and that was reflected in the livery whether that's the case or whether it was just the sponsor saying do this uh, i'm not entirely sure but a little bit of aggressiveness within yamaha wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing i think it would pretty much be exactly what fabio quadraro has been calling out for for the past year um so hopefully that's reflected in you know what we expect to be a, a relatively improved new bike whenever we see it in Sabai. It's not. It's not directed at Yamaha or or Ducati personally because it's 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 a corporate manufacturer thing. But when when is the last time any of us saw a long winded launch event ending with a dramatically new livery that was worth looking at? So this this Yamaha is new, but it's not like super new. It's and it's it's certainly not the kind of new where you'd wheel out a bunch of corporate speak about how it's you know it represents that and that about the team and its ambition. Honestly. This is this is going completely off topic, but anybody who says in the season launch what their livery represents can just just stop talking because there's like <laughs> what is this what is this PR branding exercise? We made this bike look this way because it looks cool, and also the people paid us money to to make it this specific, and put these decals on it. That's it. We're all grown adults here. You do not have to pretend like something is something that it's not. Val, you horrible cynic. <laughs> I, what, the, the big thing about the new livery for me was when we were watching the video stream of the launch, you couldn't really see it, it was different in the lighting they had on the video. And then when they released the um, the PR studio images, we were like, oh yeah, it's all camouflage-y, that is different. But in, in the studio, it was just like, oh, same Yamaha. The, the thing that it, the sort of the massive, oh yeah, moment for me during the launch was that the new team uniforms look exactly like the uh, uniforms from Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> I don't think that's what they were aiming for, but there yeah. you go. The thing everyone actually wants to know about Yamaha is whether it's going to have the engine that the riders want. Uh, you know, Yamaha's engine performance has been something that's been complained about since basically the invention of motorcycle racing, it, it feels like. And then we had this curious situation last year with the 2023 engine tests where the initial signs were, oh, this is this is promising. And then when, when Quattararo spoke after the Valencia test, it was much more negative and it wasn't really clear at the time whether he felt the design had gone backwards or that was a rogue engine or setting he was testing but it certainly ended on a on a low note so what what are we actually expecting from this engine all right so well we've we've we've, we've heard second hand and by second hand i mean it was published on road racing world the first basically post mortem after the off season break yamaha reaction to what to what actually went on and the, the gist of the quotes is that the it wasn't a mechanical issue, but the engine wasn't calibrated right for Valencia. So if I'm if I'm going to cite directly here from Road Racing World, 
and motorcycle technology. That's a, that's a long name. Anyway, we couldn't adjust to the best conditions in Valencia. For example, the gear ratios or the atmosphere or temperature or humidity or something. All right. So I wouldn't describe that as super encouraging, especially because the next paragraph says we are working hard on making the improvement for the next Sepang test. If it's a technical fault, you fix it right away, probably, or you never fix it. It's usually, it's usually one of the two. Uh, if it's a calibration thing, if the engine is a little finicky and when, when it decides to work and not work, that's it's a bit concerning, especially considering that I believe they ran it in Jerez shortly, like privately, shortly before the, the postseason test. How different could the conditions be in Jerez compared to Valencia? Maybe maybe different enough, but if, if the engine is a bit, again, finicky, that's a little bit concerning, I would say. My gut feeling is that we're going to get to Sepang and they're going to roll out the new bike and it's going to be okay. Um, and we're going to spend the entire year trying to figure out who messed up and did something really stupid in Valencia. Because I think that's going to be what it is. It's going to turn out that it's something like the engines were shipped with the incorrect gear ratio or something something dumb. Um, that's not necessarily anyone's fault because mistakes happen all the time. But um, yeah, it, it it sounded too weird. It sounded too, too off the cuff to, I don't know, to not be something that they knew the reason for. Like you say, Crutchlow tested the engine a few days before they went to Valencia and, and loved it like he did uh, when he ran it previously as Quattro and Morbidelli had when they ran it at, at Misano a few months before that. Um, and, and whether it's just had something not right in it, yeah. Um, you know, we we have also seen something like this before with Yamaha with the, the valve issue back in 2020 where the you know where they they basically had a part that was built incorrectly and was blown up left right and center and they had to cut revs to manage it to the end of the season oh yeah yeah um it, I, my gut feeling is it's going to turn out to have been something like that citing the valve thing doesn't exactly that's not like the best case scenario you're not inspiring a ton of optimism there oh it's 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 a lot like that other issue that ruined their title challenge completely yeah <laughs> but 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 if you find that if you find that after the the, the before the first preseason test rather than after yeah. eight races that's a lot yeah. better before homologation then yeah also i feel like yamaha doesn't need to turn up with a ducati beating engine i, I don't think quattro needs a revolution here he just needs something that's better enough to you know he still came very close to the title with the disadvantages disadvantages he was facing so uh, yeah what, what how much does yamaha actually need to find for him to be able to fend off ducati this year do you think you mean on the straight like yeah mainly on the straights I, I don't feel like they had another weakness really they need to find what suzuki found uh going into this year they, they just need enough that they don't immediately get blitzed uh, by Ducati on the straight. They just need to be able to hold their own. They don't need to be able to overtake there. They don't need to be able to, you know, be in a drag race with a, a, the fastest bike in the world. They just need to be able to hold their own a little bit better. And Suzuki felt like it found like 10 or something. So the, mm. the Suzuki engine was exceptional. It was really yeah, yeah. good. So I don't know, that's maybe a, a bit of a high watermark, but like if you can get in even close to that, that's really good. Uh, the other thing that was interesting at the Yamaha launch was uh, looking at Franco Morbidelli's body language and comments and trying to, yeah, yeah, you can't read a lot into an event as corporate as that, but he, he's an enormous question mark going into the season. It's genuinely heartbreaking looking at the state of his time at the Yamaha factory team, and it, it, I cannot see any way in which there's a different outcome other than another year of disappointment and then him out of the team at the end of the season but what, what do you think Val? I think he'll be better because he well you, you can finish the rest of that sentence it's not a very nice end to that sentence but yeah I think he'll be better um, more than the launch I I think it was really telling to read a comment of his in Italian Motorsprint where he addressed the the top rank get Lioglu thing now, to, to refresh your memory uh, last year towards the end of last year Lynn Jarvis who is the Yamaha boss admitted that maybe the factory should have just went for top rack, its world superbike champion, wasn't champion then, he was fighting for the title, as a straight up replacement for Vinales instead of bringing up Morbidelli, which is a, it is a brutal thing admit to, <laughs> to admit about your current rider who is under contract for another year after this one. And Morbidelli's reply to that was mostly what you'd expect. He said, well, I, 
I never felt like my, my seat was under threat from, from Resgat Lioglu. Nobody's indicated that to me. But then he finished it by saying, but obviously I get that that's not how Yamaha fans see it because he, he was delivering and I wasn't. So it's an understandable reaction. First of all, bravo, extremely mature. And it's, it's what we want to hear as media members from riders. You're just, you know, you're being honest and you're, you're telling us how things are. And, you know, there, there shouldn't be an overreaction to that. Everybody knows Franco Morbidelli's had a horrific season. Franco Morbidelli, first and foremost, knows it. But yeah, back to the point. I think it'll be better. He looked more at ease with the, with the new engine, I think. He did take some steps forward towards the end of the season, even if they didn't translate into race results. I think he'll be better, but he needs to be an insane amount better for Yamaha not to have its head turned by Jorge Martin. Like he needs to be so much better. And I don't, I, I'm not sure that's possible from one season to another. Yeah, that's, that's the problem the way I see it as well, um, is that he's been down for too long now. He's at a, a season and a half of not being where he should be or not even being close to where he should be. And it's going to take a bigger comeback than Peko did in the second half of last season for him to get back to the sort of pace that will make him look like a contender basically for that seat next year. Um, I think Yamaha probably already have regrets about having signed him on a two-year deal when they did instead of a one-year deal because I think things would be very different right now if that weren't the case. Um, I think they're very lucky that the likes of Jorge Martin are available should things not work out for them. Um, And I don't know what Franco has to do to to basically get back to where he needs to be and unfortunately I'm not entirely sure he knows either which is the whole problem because you know no one can put their finger on what exactly is wrong you know we know that he's come back from a really horrendous injury we know that the bike is not as competitive as it used to be we know that you know he's working with a crew chief that's perhaps not the most experienced guy in the paddock we know lots of reasons for this but there's none of them that explains how he went from almost winning a championship in 2020 like he came closer than anyone else to, to winning that championship off Don Mayer to just the most diabolically awful year the, the the explanation that seems truest to me like in an Occam's razor type of type of way and also from what I know which is you know not a ton but I'll, I'll you know I'll put it forward anyway the more the more I see the more I just think that the 2019 Yamaha was incredible and the rest of them have just not been as good and that maybe that just explains that the 2019 Yamaha was the bike for everyone to get the best out of everyone, except Maverick, who's weird. Yeah, there's no question in that. You're right. He is. <laughs> you know, no longer in the 2019 Yamaha, which nearly took him to the title. Franco just is more like the rider that he was before that year, which is to say a rider who could not match rookie Fabio Quartararo. The gap is pretty extraordinary a lot of the time now, and particularly some of the qualifying sessions, some of the practice sessions were more promising, but actually getting a result on a Sunday just seems to be impossible for him last year. But it's the swing, isn't it? It's like when he was winning races in 2020, he wasn't just winning. Those were completely dominant. No one else is getting near me victories. And he's a sensitive and intelligent guy. He's had a lot to think about over the last year. You can, you know, I'm getting to very amateur psychology with a rider I don't know here, but you can imagine that somebody who thinks about things that deeply will be thinking an awful lot about all the possible reasons why his form might not be this great. And that makes it hard to just shut your brain off and commit on a flying lap or maintain race pace. So I just, yeah, it just feels like there's an awful lot coming together to make this sort of not a perfect, imperfect storm of going from, I can dominate races to, I am nowhere near my teammate. And, Franco is, you know, he is all of those things. He's very thoughtful. He's very intelligent. He thinks a lot. But he also spends an awful lot of time hanging around with Valentino Rossi and Luca Marini, who are exactly the same. And you have to think that every permutation and every theory has been discussed to death within the VR46 camp about, you know, he, he couldn't be in a better place with a better support structure around him to find a way out of this problem if the problem is something that doesn't lie with Yamaha. Fred it somewhere, maybe on Reddit, as, as an idea of basically so if if Yamaha's faith is shaken enough to where it's publicly talking about it should have signed Resgat Lioglu which is sensational then I think the best outcome of this year for Franco is a respectable enough year to where he bounces back with a good satellite ride for 2024 a good satellite ride like 
VR46 Ducati. <laughs> or um, if, if, you know, Yamaha are looking at Jorge Martin Pramac. You know, a straight swap there works. Yeah, but I, so the Reddit thing, the, the Reddit thing I read was Martin to Yamaha, yeah. Marco Bezzecchi to Pramac. Yeah, that, that makes sense to VR46, well. Just in, insanely tidy. Yeah, never happens that clean, but it's, you know, it's a really good theory. A lot of respect to whoever put that one forward. Yeah, my, my memories of our predicting the 2023 Rider Lineup podcast last year are too fresh f- to expect things to go, to be that straightforward. And I still think... Look, we didn't know Suzuki were going to pull no, out. No, when you take Suzuki out of it and all the repercussions that we weren't horrendously wrong. I think we were like 50% right even with that, but... Before we move on from this, this we're, we're getting into 2024 silly season territory when talking about 2023 launches. But to me, Resgatlioglu is still the big kind of sticking point in that neat rider reshuffle that seems very obvious there. Well, that Yamaha's got a decision here, basically. It could have a real dilemma. Morbidelli gets slightly better and it kind of works. Does it stick with what it knows? Razgatlioglu is clearly amazing. Can he transfer that to a Grand Prix bike with no experience? That's a big gamble. He's he's there and he's eager in a slightly convoluted way via his manager. And then you've got Jorge Martinez, the obvious other option, but is he just going to chuck the bike down the road on its side every other race, having stuck it on pole? So, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot for, for Yamaha to gamble on there, isn't there? What do you reckon, Simon? I think one of the big tells this year um, as to how Yamaha are looking at where they're looking will be if we see Top Rack getting more tests on the M1. Um, We know we get that that sort of abbreviated due to the weather outing at at Aragon with Crutchlow uh, towards the middle of 2022. If if they announce that he's going to do another couple of days here or there, um, I think that will be a, a fairly big signal that they're at the very least attempting to, uh, to coax him over. Um, and and uh, one thing that we have learned from the Ducati launch that's worth throwing out there as well is that you know there's always been the issue of uh, all riders won't switch to this team or that team because of their personal sponsors. Um, and Ea Bastianini dropped Ducati like or dropped uh, Red Bull like a hot piece of coal to get his hands on a, a factory Yam- or a factory Ducati deal that are now monster backed thanks to Suzuki pulling out. Um, Top rack will ditch Red Bull in a flash for a factory MotoGP seat. There is no question about that. should say to, to what you asked, uh, Matt, my, my personal feeling is if Jorge Martin is ready to sign something with Yamaha now, let's say hypothetically they, they have it, you sign that contract immediately. You fly to his house. You, I don't know, play PlayStation with him for 12 hours to convince him. I don't know what you do. You do it. It is the best move. The question is whether Jorge Martin is convinced enough by the M1 which I, I think we'll find out. I think he's going to wait a little bit, and I think they're going to wait a little bit. But if they had a yes from Martin right now, you sign that deal. And you worry about it all afterwards. You sign it right now. The man is a phenom. Yes, he has race pace issues. Yes, he fades on Sundays. That's curable. That's easier to cure. And even if you get a Jorge Martin who doesn't quite live up to his ultimate potential, he's still a, an exceptional rider. We've seen enough over two years to, to know that. I felt like I saw enough over maybe the first eight months injury, injury interrupted and then there were too many things that followed that made me go, oh, come on, just actually deliver a result, please. But I also think if you're Jorge Martin, right, you know, we, we've had this conversation, Val, do you look at Yamaha and go, okay, it's not as competitive as a Ducati? And then you weigh that up against looking at what's above you at Ducati and how long do you gamble to see if Bastianini and Bagnaia isn't going isn't gonna to work out? That, that could be an immovable object. And then do you get off the best bike on the grid to try your luck on one that may or may not overhaul it in time. It's, it's a dilemma on both sides, isn't it? It's a tough one because I think it, from everything he said, the, the being passed over in favor of Enea for a seat that he fully expected was going to be his clearly hurt. He, I think Jorge Martin thinks it's time for him to be a factory rider. And if Ducati isn't giving it to him, then somebody else will. And look, Yamaha isn't... <laughs> Williams or Haas, let's go to Formula One because there's no like, there's no MotoGP equivalence of this is a, a championship caliber program with with the budget to boot, with aspirations to boot. Yeah, the M1 has seen better days, but it's, it's still Yamaha. You take it. I think you take it. Yeah. And, and I think he has to look at the current factory Ducati lineup and presume that that's locked out for the next four seasons minimum. I can't see either of those two going anywhere. 
That's yeah. We'll look back on that in five years' time. We'll revisit that prediction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I simply I can't see a reason why Ducati would want to get rid of either. Yeah, I, I on ability and performance terms, I absolutely agree. I just whether that package of people with that sort of performance and ability together is sustainable. But yeah, no, I'm excited to see that now. The other factory team that has held its launch is KTM, which um, had a mostly new rider lineup to introduce, um, including an unexpected character. See which direction we need to move in. And already at the test, uh, they've found some interesting things. So I think there's a lot more to come. Um, it's an exciting time for us, and I'm really looking forward to uh, getting hopefully better and better throughout the season. Uh, Val, do you want to explain this um, unusual addition to KTM's launch lineup? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, it's a very, very nice launch to, to KTM. Thank you for that. We got to speak extensively to both the factory riders and Francesco Guidotti, the team manager, and Pit Byer, the motorsport program boss. And Binder's uh, press conference, which went on for half an hour, was repeatedly crashed by uh, blood-curdling screams from his pet parrot. <laughs> Uh, which were just exceptionally funny. Like, there's, this is, we're not including this for any analytical reason. It was just really funny. And we, we know we can use the audio from, from that session. So it, it, like, honestly, it felt like it would have been a public disservice not to let you guys hear Brad Binder's parrots uh, yelling while Brad Binder tries to answer a question from the media. There's a, there's a really lazy joke about Red Bull giving you wings there that I'm not even going to try and shoehorn in. I mean, you did. <laughs> you said you didn't, but it's yeah, actually you did. did. So that's, you know, that's you did, cheating. Yeah. Uh, it, it was worth it. We should actually, let's hear a little bit from what Brad Binder actually said when not interrupted. But do we know the parrot's name? Oh, I I looked it up recently, but I don't know if it's because he's, some places say that he apparently had a couple at some point. Uh, I'm definitely not Googling this right now. Definitely okay, not. You th this definitely seems like a question for the KTM press officer. This is the sort of important information yeah, we want. From we'll feedback on next week's podcast. Give the people what they want. I always think when a rider or driver's pet makes a cameo, it's just really not to find out the name, really. Same with the kids. It's apparently Oscar. Oscar? Yeah. Okay. So when Brad Binder wasn't being interrupted by Oscar, this is what he had to say about... Um, I, I think this is a question from you, Val, about his title aspirations going into, going into this season. Yeah, I basically asked him whether given how good he was uh, these past two years, it would be unacceptable to not for the bike, basically, not to take a regular step towards podium and win contention. I mean, I, I've never been one to show up on a race and be happy to come where I have been. So for me, it's, I believe that, honestly, the guys have, have had, a lot, had a good amount of time now. They understand really well what, what it is we need to improve. They've touched our problems dramatically, and uh, I, I honestly believe this is one of the best opportunity I've had in MotoGP so far. So for me, um, I'm going to the year feeling optimistic for sure. Um, I have a lot of confidence in my team and uh, the bike that they've given me, and I know that together we can do a great job. So whether it's the job that we want to achieve or not, I'm I'm. 100% confidence is going to be a lot better than last year. So it's a, there's a piece you've written about Brad Val, which we're going to be running on the race later this week. And in it, you you, can't, you you mentioned something that I hadn't even thought of until then, which was if Brad Binder was on a Ducati going into 2023, we would say obvious championship contender. And I was like, actually, yeah, with the performances he's put in over the last few years. I mean, Val, you, I, I do see you as a bit of a Binder super fan, but I, I, I completely agree with your with your logic here. I'm more fickle than a super fan because if you'll remember uh, in 2021 when we did the end of season top 10, even though he finished sixth on a subpar KTM, I didn't see fit to include him because I liked Miguel Oliveira's picks, picks, peaks, Jesus, peaks, peaks more. Yeah, yeah. See, here's what my opinion is worth. I can't pronounce normal English words, but yeah. Anyway, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as a Brad Binder super fan so much as I've seen the light if that makes any sense. But also, <laughs> yeah. his 2022 was better than his 2021, and he's dangerously close to being the complete package. The qualifying still isn't there, and we, we know, as, as Francesco Guidotti of KTM said, they brought in specifically two guys who can be qualifying specialists in Jack Miller and Paul Espargaro to see if, if it's something with the bike 
or if it's something maybe their current writers need to work more on. They didn't put it that way, but you could. I think you can read between the lines and see that that's what it means. But he was just, he was staying on the bike all the time. He was executing super well. He was getting the points that were there on offer routinely. He was always improving on his qualifying position. I think, I'm going to go a step for, further than what I wrote. I think without sprint races this season, if you put Brad Binder in a Ducati and it's a normal format, I think he's the title favorite. Because maybe, I don't know that he's the fastest, but he's he has it most together. For me, it's going to be really interesting to see the addition of Jack Miller to the KTM lineup in terms of both bike performance and strategy. Um, if if you know if it turns out that the problem is Binder, we're going to see. And given what we've already said actually in this podcast about what a team player Miller is, I think we're going to see some real shenanigans and qualifying between those two, where one is towing or one is helping and assisting. Um, because if they can move him forward, if they can move Binder forward or ruin the grid every weekend, then that's basically the only step they need to make because the rest is going to come in races, at least on Sunday. Sprint races are going to be tougher, but, you know, um, if it turns out that it's the bike that can't do the times, then we're going to conclusively find that out with, with both Miller and Paul Espagaro returning to, to KTM Machinery. I, I felt really guilty uh, coming into that session and through that session because it is the 2023 season launch, and honestly, the only thing I could think of is what if the bike again isn't a tangible step forward? Because it doesn't feel like KTM has progressed massively since 2020, let's be honest here. And like at a certain point, Brad Binder is KTM. KTM is Brad Binder. They, you know, we, you cut him, he probably bleeds orange or whatever the KTM color du jour is. But it's like he's also 27, and that's not the youngest when it comes to MotoGP. And at a certain point, I think the phrase championship window comes into play and I think you will start feeling like, okay, I should be fighting for the title right now. I'm good enough right now. And you can kind of hear it in some of his answers, including I think the one that he gave to me, but he's also very extremely professional and extremely a company man. So he will never properly hint at, at like leaving or looking elsewhere. And I don't think he will. I'm not going to put it words into his mouth. He says he's not. He says he's super optimistic about the bike. He loved what he saw with that chassis update in the Valencia finale last year. But I, I, I can't help but think because none of us are going to name KTM as our title favorite coming into this season. And maybe that's on us, but like they haven't, they haven't quite proven it yet. And they will win MotoGP titles one day. I'm fairly confident of that. But Brandbinder does not have forever. So I just, I'm, I'm interested in that regard. I, I hadn't really thought about it before until you, you mentioned it, Val. But yeah, like, now that I do think about it, if, if that bike hasn't made a substantial step forward this season, then Brad Bender will never be a MotoGP World Champion. I think it's, it's almost as black and white as that because he's tied to them 23 and 24. Um, they need to make two steps forward realistically to be championship contenders. You know, a title I think is going to come if it's going to come in 24 after another step forward because they need to be regular race winners before they're regular title contenders. Um, and if it gets to 2025 and Brad Bender's 29 years old and still hasn't won a title, it looks increasingly difficult to do it then. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I, I actually did a, a visible wince when Val said, obviously KTM will win MotoGP titles, but... I would have said that every every year through KTM's rise until the last couple when it's just like, I know it's a, a big ask to come in and topple the teams that are established at the top of MotoGP, but the trajectory of KTM, and I'm going to do another a visual metaphor, which is not great on a podcast again, but it's kind of like, it rose, it rose, it rose, and then it just went, Meh. and I haven't seen in, enough sign in the last couple of seasons that it can, it, it's bet its peaks are brilliant. I haven't seen enough sign that understands where its peaks come from and how to sustainably do them week in, week out. I just, you know, I, I, I think about past like failed-ish MotoGP programs and I'm not sure that the ones that like properly failed and left, I'm not sure they ever got as good as KTM has been in flashes. Like maybe I'm misremembering Kawasaki, but 
KTM's already jumped Kawasaki, I think. I think that's fair. So the, fair. Yeah, the latest. I think at this point, they're too pot committed for the next whatever years to quit. And the way MotoGP is, I think, with the support they have, I think they'll have a world beater bike at some point. And also maybe they'll get Marquez. Who knows? Well, that's <laughs> That's been a storyline for a while, for many, many years. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's always, yeah. But, but the, the thing is, you, you talk about KTM peaks, and realistically, though, there hasn't been that many. There's been some Miguel Oliveira peaks, but like... But but you know what I mean? Like Brad Binder has has never been that like ultra consistent, ultra fast, gonna smash, you know, turns up on a Friday, looks like he's gonna win the race on Sunday and does it. They've they've never Oliveira's delivered those performances now and then. Um Binder's wins have all come in rather odd circumstances, apart from maybe the, the first one, um the the rookie win in, in Bruno. But you know, the others like yeah, they they've not been the, he's not won because he's been the fastest person of the weekend. He's won because he's been the fastest person on a Sunday afternoon, given some circumstances. But he's never been, you know, that. And yeah, I I don't know if maybe a few Miguel Oliveira race results have made the KTM look like their entire career tra- trajectory has been better than it has been. I don't know. I again, I think twenty twenty was really good. I think it was a genuinely an, an exceptional bike and an exceptional step forward. And I think, like, when you see stuff like Binder finishing second in Qatar last year, a year on from KTM, uh, collectively crapping the bed in Qatar in horrific fashion, uh, there's, there's something there. I think there's something there. And I think that, like, honestly, I would not be surprised if after that Qatar result, I said some hilariously optimistic things about their season that were then proven untrue. But... I, you're right about what you're saying in that there's never been a weekend where just Brad Binder has always looked the fastest, like the fastest guy. But I, I think part of that is because we mostly focus on the single lap in until FP4, basically. So that's one part of it. And the other part is, I think a rider like that can still win the title because I believe Enea Bastianini can do it. And Brad Binder is, you know, it's a similar thing. Another really interesting thing that came out of ATM's launch was some of the chat about aerodynamics and how its stance is kind of pragmatically adapted and a really interesting Formula One tie-up it's got going on. Um, let's have a listen to what Pit Byra said about that. I mean, we warned about that scenario, that it will open a new, uh, a new dump hole for a lot of money uh, in the budget, uh, on the budget side. We warned about it uh, for many years. We, we we were never in favor for that development, so I don't want to hide that. But yeah, it's uh, we did not really get support on that to limit that much more, which could keep the bike more in a in a in a in a classic way how it was. But that's now behind us. We found a great partner. We have the budget and we go for it. And now we enjoy the wind tunnel and we go there as often as we can. And uh, so yeah, so yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty ominous, isn't it, in a certain way? Uh, because, look, they've done a lot with Aero and MotoGP, and it's a different ball game. but bringing in, like, engineering expertise from the Aero Championship, from Formula One with its insanely intricate Aero setups and stuff, that's... I'd be, I'd be a little worried if I were a manufacturer who doesn't quite have access to that kind of thing. Um won't be like the, the magic pill or anything won't immediately make the ktm like two or three seconds faster than anyone but it's it's a, it's a hell of a thing to fall back on it, it's it's another sign for me of how the japanese are getting left behind in this war um you know we know that jacati are doing crazy work with arrow we know that aprilia are, are doing crazy work with arrow we now know that ktm have you know partnered up with their red bull with their formula one team to do crazy aero work and Yamaha are still rolling out a bike that looks pretty much like their first iteration of wings um, and, and Honda to be fair we, we've seen some photos come out that they're doing some stuff with Stefan Bradle in private testing in Jerez at the minute that looks a little bit like the the crazy Aprilia downforce fairing so they're they're working on some things but you know it, it just it's going to until the Japanese factories get on board with this until they realise that either aero is here to stay or until they push to have Aero severely restricted, they're just going to keep falling backwards. 
Politically, it's interesting that Bayer indicates that MotoGP, I guess, has now lost another vote that would go towards restricting aero development and curbing aero development, which they will have to do at some point. At some point, it's coming in one way or another, but it's just like currently it's become very politically difficult and you have to you have to imagine it's something that comes into play for when they agree the post 2026 contracts that maybe potentially will be tied tied into like a proper governance reform but that's you know that's obviously that's well well ahead of us but it's something that i think teams and manufacturers and the series stakeholders will have to think about right now because for the next few years we're going to see increasingly massive unwieldy aero setups bits of carbon carbon fiber garbage stuck on various parts of the of the bike completely unseemly impossible to look at flying around all over the place making bikes unrideable after lap one contact that's I mean, that's all needlessly mean so yeah i apologize for that but there's there there's going to be a, a reckoning <laughs> in one way or another I, I think most of our listeners are with you on that yes um, i don't think that's as harsh as you think it is val um but but like you say, the only way we're going to get a, an arrow restriction, the only way we can get an arrow restriction is whenever the rules are rewritten after the 2026 season, whenever the, the current five-year plan comes to an end. But the only way that we will get a rule change is if the entire championship structure is altered because while we still have this, to be honest, stupid system where the manufacturers dictate all the technical rules and while we have three fast European manufacturers and only two Japanese manufacturers to counterbalance them, we're going to keep going down this road because it's working for them. I understand why the system is in place. Like, I'm not going to criticize necessarily for the fact that it's there because it's, you know, it's not like MotoGP is doing badly manufacturer-wise, even though one has just left. But yeah, there's going to, I think for the greater good, there's going to have to be a reconsideration. Yeah, with, without going wildly off topic and down a rabbit hole about the governance of the sport, um, I think there should always be an option for the, the series promoters who at the end of the day are there to provide entertainment to step in and override, um, be it ride-head devices or be it you know aerodynamic fairings that none of the fans at home like or whatever it is. Um, yeah, there always needs to be an opportunity for entertainment to win over technicality. A couple of other things we should quickly talk about from the KTM launch relate to the rider lineup and a really interesting line from team manager Francesco Giudotti about how effectively KTM was forced to make a lineup change that has cost it, it the rider with the most wins for the brand so far. Um, what was he talking about precisely there, Val? So sort of a, an interesting pitfall of having uh, an academy of riders that has like 50 names so you can plug in uh, <laughs> Moto2 and Moto3 champions basically at will and... Slightly off topic, it's an issue that will continue because of Pedro Costa and Isan Guevara. I already asked uh, Pit Byer how they're going to find a place for both of them in MotoGP longer term. And he, you know, he, he basically said it's way too early to think about that, but it might be a luxury headache to have. But I think it, it could be a real headache to have pretty soon. But yes, in terms of the forced lineup, it is interesting that, you know, sometimes it feels like we maybe overrate because of how much we are interested in riders switching from one team or another it feels like we overrate the importance of a rider's input and how much a single rider can really transform a bike's development but here's francesco godotti saying that there was a mandate sounds like from the technical department or a collective mandate or something like that to go and get outside expertise in the form of miller and also i guess to a lesser extent but also spargro from guys who have seen how other operations work, who have extensively ridden other bikes and are able to provide a reference point for the RC16's development. Because obviously the 2022 lineup was riders who have only ever uh, tried the RC16. We know that whenever KTM came into the program, into MotoGP, the initial bike was very heavily based on an RC213 Honda because all of the original technical team came from Honda under Mike Leitner. Um, and, and, you know, realistically what they've done, and I, I'm not for one second saying this was an intentional long-term plan, but they've pulled off an industrial espionage coup by, by sending Paul Espagaro off to Repsol for two years and then bringing him back into KTM with all the, the knowledge that he's learned from there. It's, you know, it, it, 
it would have been well of how to make that uh, that concept worse over the last <laughs> few years. <laughs> you say worse, but you know they, they still won. They've won more titles than KTM since KTM have come into MotoGP. That might be Mark Marquez, but let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, there will be things that Honda are doing better. Um, I think that there's no there's no bike in the grid that's universally bad at everything, the worst at everything. There will be things that they can learn from Honda, even if it's to do with with how they work and how they you know how they do things in the box and in the factory. Um, Paul is a smart guy. He'll have been taking notes, not literally, but he'll have been taking notes on all of that process, and he'll come back in with a gold mine of information for them. Um, I think they would have been almost silly not to have snapped him up whenever he was on the market and whenever they they needed someone for the satellite team for Tech 3. Yeah, he's a really good hire also because of his past track record of success of being a focal point during Kate's, some of KTM's best development years. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, he was KTM for... Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much of the 2020 bike is him relative to, say, Danny Pedrosa and Mika Calio. I think it's more Pedrosa and Calio, I'd imagine, but... It's a good bike, and it was a it was a good bike that was built for Espargo in particular to exploit. Um, yeah, and I obviously there's also the Ducati factor of you know before Miller they brought in Gigi Delinia's right hand uh, Starlacchini, whose name I don't remember because I'm terrible at this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, clearly if there's a manufacturer you want to be learning from right now when it comes to aero, but also like all the other stuff. You want someone who spent five years on the Ducati and, and can tell you what your bike does and how it does it relative to the Ducati. One of my highlights of launch season so far has been uh, Italian journalist Giovanni uh, Zamangi asking Pet Bayer whether he was going to have to learn Italian because of all the Ducati engineers that KTM had been poaching. <laughs> and uh, Pet just answered him in a fluent Italian rant. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it is the truth. There's a lot. There's been a lot of Ducati talent because let's not forget they, they've taken Jack Miller across, but they've also taken his crew chief uh, with them. They've taken engineers. They're building a bit of a, yeah. They've they've had a bit of a crew in terms of poaching a few names. We should say uh, Godotti specifically objected to the characterization of Ducati having been raided by KTM in terms of a, which you know. Yeah, he would say that. He would. But he doesn't count himself as somebody from Ducati, which I, I'm not sure I sign up for that technicality yeah, for Jessica. Yeah, me neither. Jessica Godotti is, of course, from, from Pramac, so... I mean, that's, which that's, are, you know, the closest thing to a factory satellite yeah, team Ducati is. in my book. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we mentioned Danny Pedrosa in passing and his, his contribution to KTM so far. And this was, this was like launch season bombshell. Danny Pedrosa is going to race in MotoGP again, despite... That's kind of fireball exit and the curious remarks afterwards from KTM management about how they wouldn't be risking that again. He's going to race again. I, I'm genuinely surprised at this. I, I thought from the comments of both him and the factory after the um, the, the fiery end to his Austrian Grand Prix or Styrian Grand Prix in, in 21, we wouldn't see him back in the grid again. And here we are. Um, I think it's it's probably more telling of how restricted MotoGP testing has become than anything else that they need to, or they feel they need to throw them into a race weekend to see what happens. But, um, you know, it can only be good for development and it won't hurt that it's at a ref and we'll sell plenty of tickets for the Spanish Grand Prix. Now, Pit Byer put it in a really funny way. That it also, you can also interpret it as Danny Pedrosa suggesting that the bike's quite good, which I, <laughs> I think there might, might actually legitimately be something to that. Um, it's gonna be cool. It, it'll like ideally with stick Casey Stoner and a wildcard Ducati too or something. It'd just be it'd be completely perfect. Probably win. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, there is a very real possibility of that. If there's one rider in the yeah. world. But yeah, it'll it it'll be really, really cool to see Danny back. It's also cool to see that KTM is sort of with Mika Calio now over 40, I believe. They're sort of looking to figure out their next generation of MotoGP test rider, and they're giving Jonas Folger a go. Folger, yes. was, of course, Folger was Yamaha tester for a bit after the abrupt end to his MotoGP career. That didn't really go anywhere, but it, you know, it's 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 cool to have Jonas Folger around. That's just that's just really nice. I don't know if he's the long-term tester solution because I've also seen like old Speedweek quotes about them being, I mean, that quite, quite fancying Stefan Bradl. Which I think losing Stefan Bradl would be a great way for Honda to make Mark Marquez even angrier. 
So that would be an extremely <laughs> interesting development. Yeah. But yeah, it's cool to see Folger. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it's really good. And I actually do think there is a bit of long term there for him uh, as a Calio replacement rather than a Pedroza, you know, sort of number one superstar test rider replacement. He speaks German. He's fast. He's able to, you know, grind out kilometers for them on the bike during long testing programs. Um, and I, I think there is a future for him there. It, it's also worth noting that the Stefan Bradl KTM rumors normally occur around the same time as Stefan Bradl has a new Honda contract to sign and that Stefan Bradl's personal manager runs Speedweek. It's <laughs> a so pinch, big pinch of salt, big pinch of salt. Yeah. Okay, I think that's nicely wrapped up all the things we've learned from launch season so far, which is actually pretty a pretty impressive amount given that launch season hasn't really consisted of many new bikes, new liveries, or even that much rider talking relatively. So um, uh, we, we've done well. Next week when we when we speak again, Simon will be on the brink of going to Sepang to see actual bikes doing actual testing and, and the season starting for real. Um, keep reading the-race.com. Keep listening to our podcast in the meantime because F1 is just about to dive into all this with its first launches of 2023 coming up in the next few days. Uh, thank you very much for your company on our first 2023-focused MotoGP podcast of the year and we'll speak to you again very soon. The Athletic.